This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. As I prepare this show, police helicopters are droning above where I live. Can you hear them? Climate Action Group Blockade Australia are their targets, and I will bring you interviews next week. The Murdoch headlines were, Blockade pests are cashed up and lashing out. That was in the Australian. Or, Serial pests have stood by their pledge to cause traffic chaos. That's the Mercury. The New South Wales Police Minister Paul Toole on Radio 9 echoed the theme, saying, Public are furious. These are professional pests. It was up to SBS and ABC to tell us why. They said, climate change protesters arrested at Sydney mobilisation to resist climate destruction, SBS. And climate protesters who blocked the Sydney Harbour Tunnel could face up to two years in jail under the new laws. That was the ABC. So the climate wars may be over, according to Chris Bowen, but the media are still keen for a fight. I think it's up to each of us to challenge those who are blocking and blockading our minds, all in the service of short-term profits. That's just my opinion. But if you read media that is just biasing you to just hate protesters, no matter what they're doing and not really telling you what they're doing, please contact them. Let us know what you think by recording a comment and emailing it to climateaction3cr at gmail.com or you could just send us an email and I'll read it on air. Today's show is about the globalisation which is crushing food sovereignty and the localisation and it's the resilience of local crops which is its antidote. We'll talk to Helena Norberg-Hodge for World Localisation Day and then Naomi Klein who describes how local people protest differently from outsiders because they are protecting country. In Zimbabwe, Elizabeth Mfofo will talk to us about agroecology. And in India, we have Sitha Anantha Sivan to talk to us about how localising food and clothing production and cutting out those long supply chains will cut down carbon emissions. To end, my colleague Robert McLean in Shepparton will make a tribute to the much-loved climate hero, Philip Sutton. But let's start with Helena. Helena Norberg-Hodge is the director of Local Futures. It's an international non-profit organisation, and June is the month for Localisation Day. There's a film being launched and many events. So listeners, you might remember our interview with Helena about Ladakh, and how she witnessed an intact 
remote community, which was highly self-sufficient and rich in its culture. They had secure, nurtured children and a terrific form of conflict resolution. I remember that. Before globalization, we did not produce the colossal carbon emissions, which are now causing climate chaos. So welcome, Helena. Could we start by just telling us what it's like where you are? Well, where I am right now is in Byron Bay, and it's a beautiful day after many, many months of rain and very frightening floods. But we're all very happy to see the sand, to see the sun, and to see the ground finally dry, drying. And we found that in the floods, people came together in a very inspiring way. We really saw the fabric of community and the importance of community. So we're, we're feeling strengthened by that. Also a little bit worried that when people go back to normal, they'll forget how, how vital and how enjoyable the community collaboration was during the, during the height of the floods. Yes, we've had a program on that. And I think also COVID had a similar effect at first. You know, all that mutual aid that people were just reaching out in big cities, knocking on strangers' doors, offering help. Exactly. And again, you know, we're in this crazy position in a way of being in touch with grassroots, on-the-ground groups on every continent. And so it becomes so much more inspiring when you see how it's a global pattern yeah. and how all around the world this happened. And also as part of our work promoting local, we saw this clear understanding that people, you know, got in quite a, a dramatic way that they needed to try to get more local food systems going. And they started recognizing that the farmers markets were able to keep delivering food, even when the supermarket shelves were empty. And so oh. this whole global to local discussion has gained momentum tremendously because both of COVID and now the war in Ukraine. Local Futures promotes a, a systemic shift away from global monopolies towards more diversity in regional economies. And I'm interested in systems. We've talked a lot before about the local and the grassroots, but what are these systems? What system shift do you think would help us lower emissions? Well, by far the most important is the food economy. Once you look honestly at the global food system in its entirety, from what's happening, you know, all the way from the seed to the table and then back again, what's happening to the organic waste and so on, then you will see that the global food system is by far the most destructive, the one that contributes more emissions than anything else. It's also because of this craziness of our government supporting policies that separate us further and further from the sources of our food, that the mountains of plastic are strangling, you know, the, the world. And, you know, we know what's happening in the sea with the, the, the plastic and so on. So there's the, um, what most people still don't look at enough is that these policies with free trade treaties mean that step by step, governments are handing over in effect subsidies to global multinationals while taxing every small farmer and you and me, all of us are squeezed for taxes and even national businesses. 
And at the same time, at the local and national level, we all are suffering from heavier and heavier and more bureaucratic regulation. So these two things, the taxation and the regulations, squeezing everything that's based anywhere localized, even at the national level, versus giving freedom, removing regulations, and, and not taxing the global mobile business. So now this is leading to a situation where our food is traveling further and further. So as we speak, you know, Australia is exchanging tons of bottled water with the UK, the UK, you know, sending bottled water here. The US exports as much beef as it imports. And we're talking about billions of tons of food going back and forth. We're talking about food being shipped across the world, you know, fish from Norway and from Australia too, goes to China to be processed and comes back again. So when you look at the totality of that food system, that is by far the biggest problem. Yeah. The big monocultures are necessary for the global trade system. Small diversified farms are needed to feed the world. And, and it's wonderful to be involved in a movement that is growing and that is demonstrating not only that it's reducing emissions, packaging, the plastic, as I said, refrigeration, it's also restoring biodiversity and restoring community, yeah. building social relationships at the local level. I believe that. But let's go back to that global level again. Like, for example, Ukraine is giving us a good example. The wheat in Ukraine can't get out because the ports are absolutely chock-a-block with armed, armed ships, so they can't export their grain. That's Their economy depends on that. Africa, African countries apparently and, so, and some Asian countries are very dependent on importing that grain. India, I think, was an importer of Ukrainian grain. So for the future, what different system would prevent that happening? Well, well, I mean, the different system would be an immediate shift in policy to support the localizing path. In other words, if governments stopped supporting this continued increase in dependence, uh, everyone is getting more and more dependent on longer and longer distance, bigger and bigger. And that means bigger monocultures that use lots of subsidized water, destroy the soil, need more chemicals because it's so unnatural. So it's very simple. What would need to happen is that governments need to shift those policies to support exactly the opposite direction. If they did, if they did actually support this diversification, the smaller scale, it, it, it provides jobs that are so much more meaningful. We're seeing a lot of young people who are choosing farming and want to farm, but because of the policies, it becomes extremely difficult. But the problem is if we need a, an educated movement. We need environmentalists to come together with social activists mm -hmm. to articulate clearly that it's a shift in the economic system that we need both to deal with climate change and with the financial hardships that people are facing now. Yeah, I don't think most people really understand how colonization worked and how it continues now, that sort of colonizing mentality. And countries like Kenya, for example, now are experiencing uh, drought, extreme drought. So it shouldn't be right that a country starves just because they're having a localized drought and the, there's a war in the country that supplies them 
with their grain. But you see, it means that we have to be clear that we have to insist that the econometric thinking is what's killing us. Yeah. We have leaders, and, and, I'm, and I'm talking now at virtually every level, people who are looking at the economy are only looking at it in terms of flows of money and use of technology. They don't have the basic ecological literacy and I would say cultural literacy yeah. to start looking at what have been the human costs of continuing to industrialize. We've got to, I think people looking back will say, yeah, it wasn't a good thing to destroy all these small farmers and replace them with fossil fuels fossil fuel tractors, machinery, fossil fuel, pesticides, chemical fertilizers, it created a mess. What people need to understand is that right now, government policy, even in terms of what they support at university and research, are not only continuing with industrializing, but making it far worse. That's depressing. But the truth is that a small change in policy could make a world of difference because from the ground up at the local level, people are, as I said, with their own blood, sweat and tears demonstrating that it's possible to do it differently and they are doing it differently. And they, you know, like I have a, a friend in Japan who's got five acres of land that is so diversified and that he's showing that if Japan would diversify and localize instead of encourage monocultures for export, Japan could easily feed itself. Yeah. You see, it, we, we just, we, we really do have to step back, look at the big picture, and we have to start from the ground up. Yeah. We've got to look historically, like you said, how colonialism pushed people away from diversified production for their needs to focus just on monoculture for export. Now that's what's continuing. And we need to be saying immediately, these policies need to shift towards supporting diversification for home needs as a priority. And right now, Australia should be doing that. But Australia is locked into the belief that our agriculture has always been about huge monocultures to rape the land in Australia to export, you know, starting with exporting to Britain. And that's what's continuing. And um, the idea that it's not possible to do it differently is coming from people who are not looking honestly at the maths, who are not going to the ground, they're not actually measuring the productivity of a diversified system versus a monocultural system. Right, I'll ask you about the, tell us some of those examples in a minute, but just something that comes to mind is a shock that you and I have both experienced because we're in Australia this week and the energy market operator suspended normal trading of the profitable energy supply, um, and it's, it's called AEMO, and they uh, have suspended that, and they have the power to force power generators to supply energy because it's an essential service. And I think a lot of people, one of the people on your um, website connected to your website is called Systems Change Alliance, and they they really want um, public governance of utilities. And I think that would be a big help that will be a big shift to say no look the fact is these are essential services water electricity uh, we just ha have to have a guarantee and when we, we have witnessed this haven't we the, the gas suppliers and the, so on they said we're not making the, the correct profit this is not profitable for us so we will pull back supply that is yeah. 
that's the kind of hostage taking that we don't want to see anymore. Exactly. But, we, exactly. but we've seen AEMO take over. In COVID, we saw government say, no, put a stop to a lot of activity for the safe, the better safety, the greatest public health safety of everybody. And so I think sometimes something sudden can happen like that that makes people wake up. Do you agree? Absolutely. And I think, again, part of what I'm talking about is that the way that <coughs> government blindly are handing over rule, essentially, to yes. global banks. And it's not, we need to remember, too, what's, what's happening is that the financial casino linked to the giant trading systems, whether it's in energy or in food or in engineering, uh, weaponry linked to the military, all of that is now run by algorithms. And it's very, very frightening. And so what I'm seeing is a lot of good people inside those large institutions, simply looking at the bottom line, that's what they have to do, looking at as in government at GDP and in business at the bottom line, and it's really going to be from the people. I'm calling on all environmental activists. I'm calling on everyone who's concerned about human welfare, whether it's the epidemic of anxiety and depression among young people that is now reaching exponential proportions in virtually every country. And by the way, it's worse in industrialized countries than in less industrialized because there we, have, we are more isolated. We're more dependent on the screen and we have less human contact. So I, I'm really wanting us, us to be, be clear and not be afraid to question the dominant assumptions. We don't have to go into the details of data and very specialized econometric thinking, but we need to look at the fact that GDP simply measures financial transactions. And that means that literally, if you and I get cancer and have to have chemotherapy for years, it's good for GDP. If our water is so polluted, we have to buy it in bottles, GDP goes up. If you and I decide we wanna be healthy and we're gonna not eat any processed food, we're gonna plant a garden so we can have healthy, nutritious food, we're being unpatriotic. Now. We need to be saying, wait a minute. And once we understand that that's linked to people working harder and harder to just put food on the table and a roof over their head, I think we can get a much stronger movement yeah. because we're talking really about the majority. There's no one here who's not being negatively affected. True. We've only got a few minutes left, Helena, but I just want you to tell us some examples that will be in the film. We're talking about localization day uh, around the world. People uh, will be honoring local initiatives. Now, this is close to your heart. Just tell me one or two, especially with a bit of a climate focus, if you like, something that will benefit. The well, I do. I do want to mention that in the film, we do have people like Naomi Klein and we have um, Noam Chomsky, Jane Goodall, and so these people who have quite a following are supporting the voices of people from Zimbabwe, from Brazil, from Japan, from Korea, and you'll hear from all of these people, including policymakers. There's a city in South Korea that we've been working with for seven years now. They've been putting on Economics of Happiness conference every year. And they have been experimenting with these localization initiatives. You'll see examples from Canada of how local communities are now actually allowed 
to start planning for their own pension funds that are regionally based instead of feeding into the casino. You'll hear of examples that will inspire you and will show you that this rebuilding of the social fabric and starting to reconnect you know, the whole fabric from producer to consumer has fundamental ecological, social, spiritual benefits. Yeah. What about First Nations people? Because I think that's one re area where we have to reach out. We we have to reach out and help those people protect the land. I've heard that most of the biodiversity of the world is held in the hands of people from First Nations. Yeah, well, we are actually, you know, our work started in the indigenous culture of Ladakh, where yeah. There were about 100 villages spread across a very large area. It's up on the Tibetan plateau, part of Tibet. And ever since that time, we've been connected to many indigenous groups and traditional cultures and farmers around the world. And what we're seeing is that for them, one of the biggest problems is the psychological pressures from media, even from schooling, that make them feel backward and stupid. And so young people often cave into this pressure that they're inferior and backward if they lead a land-based life. So this is again part of World Localization Day, is connecting those people with people in the Western world who have tasted the, the life in the big city, the commercialism, the lack of community, and are actually longing to have more intergenerational community, more contact between the ages, more contact with the land, with the animals. And so this is creating a completely different message. And this is why um, international collaboration, deeper cultural exchange is vital today. Localization is not about some kind of isolationism and retreating into just caring about our own. It's once we have that bigger picture and we have deeper understanding We'll also have much greater faith in human nature. We'll have much greater conviction that ultimately people and nature are the power. A sort of techno-economic idea of how to grow, which is actually a, an idea that's killing real growth, mm -hmm. is what's, what we have to do away with. And we just have to be stronger in our convictions, in our experiential knowledge of what's important. And one of the key things that we encourage also is that we create circles of people, colleagues, friends, to discuss these issues together. So we start a joint journey of thinking, what can we do? What can we do together rather than just what can I do as an isolated individual? Marvelous idea. We did that during COVID when you could only have a few people in your home. And I had films, you know, from the Transition Film Fest, and we had marvelous discussions. So... I, I totally agree with you there. The, the best website is localfutures.org. Yes. Localfutures.org. And there you will also find a link to other websites. We have a localization action guide and we have the program for World Localization Day. And especially I hope people will tune in to the launch of the film Planet Local and we will have a discussion afterwards um, that people can sign up for, okay. that I and some other people from the film will be joining. Thank you very much for that. It's lovely to see you again.
Well, thank you. I hope we can stay in touch. And I, I do yes. hope you look more at our materials. And I will. I think, I think, you know, between us, the biggest, darkest secret, which does not get out, is that countries are continuing to negotiate trade treaties where in black and white they are saying, we will not do anything that could reduce your profit-making potential. Yeah. If we do, you can sue us in these oh, kangaroo courts. Yes. Yeah. And you see, I don't think anyone, you see a lot of people, even in government and in big business, they're not being forced to look at this and to look at what it means is that we're making a complete mockery of democracy. Yeah. Now here's a song to celebrate the richness of local music in the Indo-Pacific. It's called Small Islands Big Song and it was workshopped through the pandemic by Tim Cole from Australia and Ba Bao Chen from Taiwan. Musicians from Madagascar to Papua New Guinea and Tahiti shared their worries about climate change and climate injustice and now they're touring in Europe. Song is Tautama which means my child. We ask the question to ourselves, what are we going to tell our children if we fail to protect our planet?
we must recapture our rights from global corporations. That's why I support World Localization Day. Greetings to everyone participating in World Localization Day. I'm Naomi Klein. I'm speaking to you from the place I love most in the world, the unceded Coast Salish territories of the Seashelt and Squamish nations in a small community called Whale Kwai, or Half Moon Bay, British Columbia. This is salmon country. The salmon that spawn in our streams here feed our amazing forests and oceans and the birds in the sky. Salmon are at the center of indigenous culture here and they are the lifeblood of our local fisheries. Salmon are the keystone of our local economy, human and non-human alike. They are life. And yet, as I think about localization and speaking to you today, I realize that they are in grave danger. They are in danger from overfishing for export. They're in danger from fish farms that introduce pathogens to their populations. They're in danger from oil spills, from new oil pipelines that should never be built and yet are being pushed through on indigenous lands. And underneath it all, they are in danger from climate chaos because these incredibly generous, abundant fish may well not be able to survive in the warm waters that are their future. We need a global climate movement to confront these forces, but that movement is strongest when it is made up of many, many smaller local movements that are rooted in places like this and driven by the love of place and by the need to protect their land, water, and air. One of the things that I found over the years 
covering the climate movement <clears throat> is that global movements are powerful, but people fight differently when their lives depend on it. Um, we saw it in Standing Rock. Um, we see it in so many locally based uh, struggles against purportedly a pipeline or a new coal-fired power plant. But underneath that, they're not against anything. They're for something. They are for the place where they live and the place that sustains them. I've also spent much of my life studying the impacts of large shocks on societies. And one of the things that happens in uh, the midst of large scale shocks and crises is that we realize very quickly how vulnerable our globalized supply chains are. And in the rocky world of climate chaos, we're seeing many more examples of this. Um, one that springs to my mind was what happened to Puerto Rico when it was pummeled by Hurricane Maria. Um, that was a category five storm, devastating impact. It knocked out the port, it knocked out communication, it knocked out um, obviously energy. Um, what made Puerto Rico uh, so vulnerable and what made that such a deadly storm was not just the impact of the storm itself, but the aftermath when those supply chains that provided imported energy and imported food were severed. Um, and it made no sense, you know, for a, an island like Puerto Rico, so uh, with such fertile soil and such abundant sun and wind, to be importing fossil fuel energy um, and to be importing so much food um, and exporting what they were growing. Um, and, you know, these sometimes feel like abstract issues, but when there is a shock like that, it's the difference between life and death. Uh, localization in this context context is survival. Here in Canada, um, we did a pretty good job in the face of, of the pandemic in the first phase. But when it came to vaccination, we were caught completely flat-footed because in Canada, we've lost our ability to make vaccines. So once again, survival depended on these global supply chains and global corporations, and it hasn't turned out well. We already knew that living more locally was good for the planet. If it's done intelligently, it can dramatically lower emissions from shipping and other forms of transportation. And many of you participating um, in this gathering have been saying this for decades upon decades. But the truth is that even if we do reduce emissions very rapidly as we must, we've done so much damage that we will be facing more shocks, more novel viruses, more cataclysmic storms. Our communities must prepare by becoming more self-sufficient, more able to provide for our basic food, energy, and medical needs. Self-sufficient is not the same as isolated or parochial or insular. I'm an internationalist, but more sturdy, more ready, and more resilient communities is what we need for when the next shock comes. Localization also builds community organization. We saw it in the Lismore floods where neighbors rescued each other from roofs way before the state services arrived. And here is Dr. Salim Ulhaq on how they prepare for disaster in Bangladesh. So we have a policy of no one gets left behind. School kids in the coastal zone get training on, they get assigned households, you know, a widow living on her own. 
there'll be two school children whose assignment is to go and get the widow and take her to a, a shelter to make sure that she uh, is taken to a shelter. And, and it's the most effective cyclone evacuation in the whole world, I can tell you. It's the most effective in the whole world. Now we'll go to Zimbabwe to hear what localization can do. Many of these small farmer groups are part of Dia Campesina. It's a worldwide massive group of small farmers. And if you doubt that the world's food can be supplied by localized farming, you need to look up their website and find out what they're doing and how widespread their work is. My name is Elizabeth Mpofu, a small scale farm, a woman farmer practicing agroecology. I am also the founding member of Zimbabwe Smallholder Organic Farmers Forum, which is also a member of La Via Campesina, a global peace and movement, which consists of about 180 small scale farmer organizations, indigenous farmers, the landless people, and the majority of whom are the youth and young women across the globe, covering almost 86 countries. Right now we are at the Agroecology School at Shashe and here I'm at Mpofu Center of Excellence. When we started we were very few, we were only 15, but then uh, towards the climate crisis many, many communities came and also joined us on the agroecology school. So we are talking of about 300 families when we are talking about the actual members. My name is Nelson Muzingwa. I'm a smallholder farmer in the Shashe block of farms where we have the Shashe agroecology school. I'm a member also to the central cluster that is part of the Zimbabwe Smallholder Organic Farmers Forum where I act as national coordinator for the organization. In the Shashe Agroecology School, we have 12 families who are occupying 184 hectares, and each family has got what we call a center of excellence. And within the center of excellence is where we, we are demonstrating and showcasing many of the practices that we relate to our local our processes of producing food and at the same time managing our environment. Food sovereignty, if I can just briefly explain about the difference of food sovereignty and food security. When we grew up, we were just hearing the issue of food security, food security which means we just need abundance of food, not necessarily taking consideration where it is produced, how it is produced. Now, with food sovereignty, this means you are in control of your own food production systems. You can also decide on how you really want to produce the food. This is food sovereignty. We don't really necessarily encourage food security. That is why we are really fighting for food sovereignty. We want to produce our own, using our own natural resources, what is surrounding us, and making decisions on how we really want to produce, apart from food security, where we are just being uh, given some food aid, which are not really healthy to the people, which are not really 
we don't know what what they can cause to the healthy system and we are experiencing so many diseases due to consumption of different foods which are which come uh, as food aid in our country so food sovereignty you are the one who makes decision what to grow and how you want to grow we produce our own indigenous seeds making use of our own traditional norms and values I inherited the type of the food that I'm eating from my parents and it's what they have also inherited from the past generations. Seed has become one of the core elements of our food systems. Without seed you cannot produce food and without seed you, you are not able even to generate any form of livelihood, especially being a smallholder farmer like myself and we have given lots of values over uh, recovering all the local seed diversity because that's where we, we're getting lots of the nutrition that we require at the present moment. We need to eat healthy food. So healthy food is only out of the diverse seed resources that have been grown by our forefathers long before. When we're going into the debate about climate change, we're not looking at uh, very simple matters here. We're looking at us participating more on how to manage the water cycle, how to manage the nutrient cycle, how to manage the energy cycle, as well as managing succession so that at least we have a balanced ecosystem. We believe it is a movement that is connecting different people in many different communities. They cannot survive in isolation. They would like to connect for them to be able to participate meaningfully and effectively in the politics about food systems where there is that control that could be there to make us depend on what we don't believe could be the nutrition that we require. To us, agroecology is a tool that we use to mobilize others to feel that they should grow their own food, they should grow what they have to eat, they should develop their local economies, and to us, agroecology is a science. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. In India this year, extremely hot weather affected the wheat crops and Minister Payush Goyal has banned exports. Millions of tonnes have also been locked up since Russia invaded Ukraine. As Sita Anantasivan says, the global economic system is like the Pied Piper leading our children to their doom. It's of critical importance today to go back to localization, especially for basics like food and clothing, which are hugely contributing to carbon emissions and loss of employment to millions. The globalized economic system that dominates our world is like the Pied Piper who led the children of Hamelin to their doom. With its enchanting glamour of media, consumerism and big business, globalization has led us to so many crises like climate change, ecological disasters, widening gap between the rich and the poor, 
an increasing social violence and illnesses of all kinds. What gives us hope is the millions of deep thinkers and their initiatives that promote localization as a major systemic solution that we need to arrest our civilization's free fall to disaster. When we think local and we consume local, um, it makes for a healthier planet because the, the ripple effect it causes um, and, and the um, this community spaces that it creates is just beautiful. And also things like community gardens are catching on, especially in cities. So people are working together, volunteering on the weekends to work on a community garden. I'm trying to shift away from contributing to the fossil fuel economy in any way possible. Uh, it makes so much sense because the only people making money in the whole economy seem to be the people who are extracting from uh, the system. Millions of local initiatives already exist in India for local agriculture, innumerable local crafts, creating local economies and much more. 93% of our total workforce of India is from the unorganized sector, which includes small and localized businesses. Gandhiji said, India needs production by the masses, not mass production. And that we need Gram Swaraj, which really means respect for localization. India is a country that still has over 20,000 varieties of rice, over 1,000 kinds of handlooms, over 120 major living languages, and we have diversity of all kinds. We still need to follow the wisdom of Gandhiji. like to learn more about the localization movement you can look up the website of local futures there's a new film and there's many resources on there or you could read paul hawkins new book regeneration where he says on page 179 if you live in a food system that comes apart in a pandemic then it's a brittle system that reveals the lack of food security localization and food sovereignty has a profoundly beneficial impact on the greatest threat to our food, which is runaway global warming. Acts of localization regenerate the environment, the water, our children, the oceans, the soil, and our cultures. Hi there, music lovers. It's Jane and Joe here. From Music, Music Matters. Matters, we're here to remind and encourage you to either renew or subscribe to this extraordinary volunteer-based community radio station that is 3CR. Why? Well, for over 45 years, since 1976, it has provided a space for underrepresented voices and independent musicians outside of the commercial mainstream. We curate and talk to artists that entertain and inform you, whether it's personal, political or both. 3CR plays at least 55% Australian music each week, but Music Matters is always way above that. So the choice is yours. 
that will be good for your soul. $35 unwaged or concession. $75 waged. And $150 for solidarity, band or organisation. Go online for further details. 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Or ring the station during business hours. 9419 8377. You can listen to Music Matters from noon till 2 every, every Friday. Friday. And now I'd like to read a tribute to Philip Sutton from Climate Guardian Angel Deborah Hart, who is a friend of this show. The day after his death, she said, Philip had a profound impact on the world. His capacity to think and care so deeply, simultaneously, was unique and beyond exceptional. I worked closely with Philip on the Climate Emergency Network that formed to advance the seminal Climate Code Red. It was the greatest privilege. Philip was a brilliant, kind, generous and humble man. On the greatest challenge of all time, he was a crucible in the best, most powerful sense. I just feel devastated that we never had a chance to tell him how we felt about him. Sending love and deepest condolences to his family and those closest to him. And I agree with all of that and send my heartfelt condolences to Philip's family and friends and to all of us in the climate movement who benefited from his presence. And now here's Robert McLean from Climate Conversations. Let us remember Philip Sutton, Australia's, one of Australia's real climate heroes. Philip died just recently. And so today we're going to have a quick look at Philip. This is the latest episode of Climate Conversations and I'm your host, Robert McLean. Philip Sutton was the epitome of the climate champion. And I use the term was, sadly I use the term was because Philip died just last week. And that was the week beginning Monday, June 13. Philip was recognised just yesterday, and yesterday was Saturday, June 18, at a monthly meeting of the Victorian Climate Action Network, a meeting at which he was meant to speak and talk about geoengineering and protecting those unable to protect themselves. The ECAN organisers were somewhat worried about whether they should have the meeting or not, but then it was agreed that Philip would actually like the meeting to go ahead the meeting began with personal reflections from people about Philip. Some knew him well, some not at all. One who did know him well was David Spratt, who in 2008 published the book Climate Code Red, which he and Philip had written together. Climate Code Red was the book for many people, introducing them to the rigors and threats of climate change. David was at the meeting and spoke very briefly about Philip. This is what David Spratt said at yesterday's VCAN meeting. And he pointed out that a longer piece about Philip's life and work will be published in Renew Economy this coming week. Philip was a really big picture thinker. He was a fearless provocateur uh, and a pioneer. Uh, he, could, he could be irascible, uh, sometimes with good reason, uh, generous with his time, um, a tireless networker and irreplaceable. Climate Conversations was able to interview Philip and we were talking about the climate emergency, something he had played a key role in organising. And we were in the RMIT library when suddenly we were told there was a fire emergency and we had to leave the building. 
It seemed ironic that we were talking about the climate emergency and suddenly here was a real emergency right in our laps. Let's have a listen to that interview now. The book that you co-authored with David Spratt in 2008 was called Climate Code Red. And yep. while that was accurate then, it still is now. That wording has been appearing or has appeared a lot just recently at COP26. So that was somewhat prescient. So why did you settle on that title? Well, I think it was David who, who chose it, but it was basically picked up from the kind of medical emergencies or something other hospitals have their various codes and uh, I don't know whether we actually accurately picked it up but you know red seemed to be danger so you know code red was a, a danger code and uh, so then you just stick climate on the front so <laughs> I, I don't know whether anybody picked it up from our book or whether it was just that they reinvented it um, you know I mean it could have been either way yeah yeah you were at the recent meeting of the Victorian Climate Action Network and you talked about a new campaign you have which is called Climate Rescue and you have you point to three fundamentals around which the program is built so can we talk quickly about those? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, can you tell me what Climate Rescue means? Like, why that title? Well, I guess the thing is that what what's happened is that we've, we've settled into a pattern, a holding pattern with climate action, which is that we, quote, know that what we need to do is reduce emissions. Now, the thing is that that was an accurate description of action back about 40, 50 years ago, um, but it's no longer an accurate description of what we need to do if we actually want to protect anything that we currently see that's uh, being threatened. So people of the Pacific Islands or coral reefs or the Amazon forest or protecting you know the, the ice sheets in the Greenland or West Antarctic those are all things which are actually under threat right now and so the, what we were trying to find was or what I was trying to find was a, a, a term which would imply um, something which was very active and was focused on actually getting you know whatever we care about people or, or nature or whatever out of danger that they're in right now and that of course will be much worse in the future if we don't act effectively but um, to, to not act I mean the notion of a rescue is that you you have an idea of who you're trying to rescue if you don't rescue all the people that you set out to, to save then you say that we had an attempt at rescue and we failed and you just recognize the reality that you didn't do a good enough job but you don't you don't praise yourself for having gone out on the rescue you praise yourself for the results of the rescue well, can you talk to me quickly about those three the three pillars of that plan? Okay. Um, what happened was that we the, the scope of the climate rescue exercise is huge, and because we have to deal with the threats that now exist, we we have some extra challenges that are not normally recognised. So the first part of it was to actually anchor people very clearly on what it is that they're trying to protect, who and what they're trying to protect. So that was the, the first part, which is protect the climate vulnerable, which means a process of finding out who or, or what, in the case of um, some other living things or uh, ecosystems, who and what is threatened, what would they need to be secure and what would we need to do by when to actually achieve that security? And that's the first part of it. So you anchor on what you're trying to protect. Then the next step is we have to recognise now that the Earth's actually too hot. I mean, seriously too hot. 
And so that's actually now part of the problem. It's not just a matter of getting emissions down to zero, which we have to do at emergency speed, but we also have to get the, the excess temperature down to a safe level at emergency speed. So we need we need to get the temperature down to a safe level um, as well as getting the emissions down to zero. So the next part of the next anchor point was the notion of looking um, directly at the question of whether you can do fast cooling. Now, it turns out that we, we've known, scientists have known for some time, that there are methods that at the point of deployment could actually cool the Earth's atmosphere down to a safe level probably within the space of something as short as one year once you start deploying it. Um, but we, we haven't really wanted to look at that in the past for several different reasons. One is that we were anxious not to give the, a free pass to the fossil fuel industry for obvious reasons. Um, we weren't sure about the safety of these methods, etc. But the problem now is that well, I think we really need to find out whether we can make make these fast cooling methods safe because the, the damage that will be done to people, other ecosystem species um, and earth systems uh, elements is going to be so huge if we can't get fast near-term cooling that we'll be in terrible trouble. Philip, is there something else you'd like to say about climate rescue? Um, well, it's an interesting point. Um, it's it's getting me out of bed in the morning. It's it's given me personally a, a great sort of boost to think that we can actually get you know have a have a crack at this. So um, I don't know if, if it, I'm hoping that if it works for me, it might work for others. But uh, I guess we'll see when we try. Philip, that's probably all I need to know at this point. So I appreciate your time. That's great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you all for listening to the Climate Action Radio Show. Thank you to our guest, Helena Norberg-Hodge, for her magnificent leadership with Local Futures, to the Small Islands Big Song Music Group, to Naomi Klein in Canada, Dr. Salim Ulhaq in Bangladesh, Elizabeth Mfofo in Zimbabwe, and Sitha Ananthasivan in India. Thank you also to Robert McLean from Climate Conversations and Mark Spencer for technical help. Thank you again to all of those who donated during Radio Radiothon. We've got one fundraiser to go, showing a film about Jack Mundy in a building that he saved. And thank you to all of you listeners who are stepping up to climate action. In the streets, on the phone, through your superannuation, through talking to people, just stepping up and not being a bystander. Thank you to all of you. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. Thank you.